All right. Good morning, everybody. We doing good? We're off to a good start. All right. I like it. I like it. Um, I don't know if I introduced myself at the beginning. My name is Peter. I'm the pastor here. Um, and uh, we're excited that you're here. We are continuing in our series. We're in week three of our series called, uh, called Tighten the Knot. And can I just say that last week's message, I know like, Peter, you give the message. Uh, last week's message hit hit home for me really hard. Um, it was a, uh, a Holy Spirit message, and the, the whole idea was to commit to out-serving your spouse in every way, right? Like out-sacrifice for your spouse, serve your spouse, all of that stuff. So uh, that message from the Holy Spirit, uh, I took that to heart because, man, our house was spotless for like three days afterwards. Um, like I was scrubbing counters and rinsing dishes uh, from kids' plates. They weren't even done eating sometimes. I was like, nope, you're done. It has to be clean. No one's allowed to look like that we live here. Um, so, uh, so anyway, uh, <laughs> I hope I hope that you are kind of cruising along in uh, in this series as well, and gathering some uh, tips and hints and different things like that about how you can make your your marriage a stronger, more God honoring marriage. Uh, because if if at the end of the day you call yourself a Christian, that's that's what you want. Uh, you want to honor God with your marriage. You want to honor God with your life in every single way. And I alluded to this a little bit uh, a little bit last week, but at the end of the day. If you want your marriage to be strong, you don't need to work on being a better spouse. You need to work on being more godly, right? And that's largely the crux of the message today as well. You want your marriage to be strong? Cool. Be more godly. Stop trying to be a, uh, a better spouse. Here's an example. Uh, when I was younger, I loved baseball. I loved everything about, about baseball. Um, I loved hitting. I loved playing third base. I loved shortstop. I loved catcher. I loved anything that I could like be in the midst of baseball. Like I loved the situational aspect of baseball where I had to know what I was, I was going to do with the ball and let, just in case the ball got hit to me and then that changed depending on how many outs and like if someone on first, second or third base or whatever. But all of those things, like more than anything, I loved hitting. So much so that, man, I looked up to the greatest home run hitter of all time, Barry Bonds. Yeah, I know. Dodger fans, I don't even care. 756, no asterisk next to it, okay? Barry Bonds, the greatest single home run hitter of all time. I grew up in the area, uh, the area, the era of Barry Bonds' dominance, like legit, legitimate dominance, a dominant force. He would see one pitch a game and hit it 600 feet. I didn't even know that was humanly possible. I don't know how he did it, but he did it, guys. So anyway, um, some of you guys are like steroids. Leave him and his big head out of it. But I would like to say that I peaked in my baseball career in about eighth grade, right? I was decent, but I peaked at about eighth grade. When I got into high school, I had two problems with baseball. The first issue is I didn't grow as fast as everyone else on my team. So as guys were like hitting bombs, like over, you know, 300 feet and that sort of thing, I'm trying to like clear the infield. Right? Like coaches, once you get to like that level, they're not like, hey, you're terrible, but we like you enough to keep you on the team, right? You don't ever play. You don't ever start. They're like, best case scenario, they're going to make you a manager. And let me tell you, like, that is not best case scenario for anybody. And so that was the first issue that I had is I was just smaller than everybody else. But I think the bigger issue is that like, as I was like pressing in and trying to figure out how can I just be better, like I want to be better at baseball so I could start on the baseball team, I stopped thinking about how to be a better player 
baseball player, and I just started like looking at all of these external things that other people were doing to be great baseball players. So back to Barry Bonds. I had a poster in my room of Barry Bonds, okay? And it's his beautiful left-handed home run swing, and um, it's a picture, like he was left-handed, like I said, so like you could see like a dangly cross earring from the back, and he had a bat that was slightly undersized because he was all about bat speed, and if I could swing the bat Far, or swing the bat faster rather than the ball was going to go further, like all of these things. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, I know I'm smaller than everybody, but if I can just do some of the same things that Barry Bonds does, like I wanted to copy his swing from a right-handed perspective though, like I wanted to like get, dad, can I get like a slightly undersized bat? And he's like, you're small already. You don't swing a large bat in the first place. I'm like, dad, no, it's worth it. Trust me. Give me a t-ball bat. I don't care, right? I would have gotten my ear pierced if my parents would have let me just so I could look more like Barry Bonds and do the things that Barry Bonds was doing. So in my, th- in my head, I thought to myself, if I could do all of these things, that I would be just the, a, a great baseball player. I was neglecting the fact that in order for Barry Bonds to be the greatest home run hitter of all time, bar none, with no asterisk next to his name, he had to take thousands and thousands and thousands of repetitions in the batting cage. He watched film on his swing and how to be better. He watched film on other pitchers and what it is that they were going to throw him in order for him to capitalize on, uh, on those pitches that they were throwing. And on top of that, he had some of the best God-given hand-eye coordination in the entire world. But I wasn't looking at those things. Like, those things didn't matter. Give me an earring and a small bat, and then I could be the greatest home run hitter in the history of the world. Right? I was focusing on earrings. Why? Because we focus on what can easily be seen rather than work towards what, has been, like what we need to do in order to honor God with our lives. Right? If I want to be the greatest baseball player in the world, I need to stop worrying about the size bat Barry Bonds was using and start getting in the cage and taking swings. Right? If I want to be the greatest baseball player ever, I need to stop focusing on how to look like a good baseball player and put in the work to become the greatest baseball player ever. And so all that to be said, you want to have a good marriage? You want to have a godly marriage, a tight knot marriage? Stop trying to make it look perfect and start putting in the work that is required for it to be great. That's the difference because, you know, our goal should be for us to have these God-honoring marriages where we're excited to serve our spouse, where like our conversations are actually conversations and not yelling matches, we're constantly trying to outdo the other person or simply like win an argument because there's no way I'm going to let them get the best of me again. Or I have to win this conversation. And so often where a lot of our marriage there, maybe your marriage isn't, isn't rough. Maybe your marriage isn't in a bad spot, but maybe like in order for you to tighten the knot in your marriage, you just need to open up some lines of communication. Make sure that we're talking with, with each other well. Figure out how to not simply have a glorified roommate for a spouse. Maybe that's where you're at. Wherever you're at, I just want to, I want to encourage you like, I want you to know that it's okay to be in a marriage that is a difficult marriage, that, it, that, that maybe your marriage has issues. The vast majority of people who get married have issues in their marriage. Like, that's a normal thing. Marriage is difficult, but man, we show up here and we're just like, oh, no, we're good. We're happy. We're smiley. Like, our marriage is the perfect marriage. Yeah, we just screamed at each other on the way to church, but we're fine now. It's fine. So often we love to be able to do that stuff and just like put on faces. So wherever you're at, I just want to encourage you. You don't have to 
pretend like you have it together at church. I don't want you to hide behind this fear that if someone finds out what your marriage is really like, that they're going to disown you or we're going to disown you as a church in some way or whatever. Today, I just want to make sure that we are able to be real with our marriages and where they're at so we can begin to do the hard work of actually having a God-honoring relationship, having a God-honoring marriage, not just pretending to have one. So let's do some of the hard work. Ephesians chapter 4, you can flip that open. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. This isn't a marriage passage, by the way. This is not a marriage passage we are going to be reading out of. This is, this is a passage about living godly life. But Peter, you said that we were going to learn about, about marriage. Yeah, you are. You want a better marriage? Become more like Jesus. Okay? Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1, this is what it says. As a prisoner for the Lord then, this is Paul talking to the church in Ephesus. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a, a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with, another, with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. A lot of alls in there. So let's stop there for a second. As a Christian, it says in verse 1, we are supposed to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. That frames this entire chapter, that we are supposed to live a life worthy of the calling that we receive. So the question then becomes, if we are supposed to live in a manner worthy of our calling, what is our calling? What is our calling? Because if we need to live that way, if with our expectation is to live out this calling, what is our calling? Our calling is to proclaim Jesus with our lives, full stop. That's our calling. You know what your calling is as a Christian? Proclaim Jesus with your life, period. As you are living your life, proclaim Jesus with your life. Yeah, there's, there, there, there is a particular way to live our lives for this calling. We don't get to go, we don't get to be a Christian and act however it is that we want to act or do whatever it is that we want to do. That's not our calling. Creature comforts are not your calling. Living for the weekend is not your calling. Right? This walk is our response to everything that God has done for us. This calling that we have is a response to everything God has done for us. We are supposed to live lives reflecting this new identity that it's going to talk about in just a second in the book of Ephesians. You have been called to something great. You've been called to something glorious. So the call in our lives then is to walk worthy of that calling. Walk in such a way that you are worthy. So if you go back to chapter 2, you don't have to, but if you did, Paul condemned believers because they were walking in a way that followed the ways of the world. They followed the plans of Satan. They followed the, the passions of their flesh. They carry out the, these desires of their body. And that's the former walk. That's how, that's how things used to be. And now you have a new walk, a little bit of a, a new swagger, a new walk that is not going to go back to carrying out your desires of your body and your mind. The new walk is not following your passage. Your new walk is not following the ways of this world. You are supposed to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And Paul says something very subtle here at the very first part of verse 1. He says, as a prisoner of the Lord. That's how he starts this whole thing, which I appreciate, but it seems kind of weird that this is one letter and in chapter 4, the middle of the book of Ephesians, that just now he's saying, as a prisoner of the Lord. It doesn't seem a little bit weird, like if he was going to be introducing himself, usually it'd be at the very front end of the letters, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ, maybe, you know, say something about the fact that a prisoner of the Lord. So why does Paul bring up that he's a prisoner of Christ at the moment? Walking worthy of your calling is going to be costly. I think it's one of the things that Paul was mentioning here. Paul urges us to walk in this way, understanding that the walk is costly. 
You will not fit in with the world as a Christian. Understand that trying to walk according to your calling is countercultural. It is difficult. How you will now behave is the opposite of what culture deems to be correct. And that's, that, like, that's, that's, that's difficult. And he continues, and he continues into how our lives should look, right? A little bit further down, like what it is that you should do. And if you've been around church for enough times, you've heard Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit, okay? This is kind of like a Cliff's Notes version of the fruit of the Spirit that's happening here in Ephesians chapter 4. He's saying all like live a life worthy of your calling you have received in your, that you have received. And he says, be humble, be gentle, be patient, bear with one another in love, be unified and peaceful. Why? Because Jesus is in charge of everything and he should be exemplified in your life. So do all of these things and then, okay, this is Jesus, like, like this is how I, I live a life worthy of our calling. So Peter, why are we learning about being a better Christian? I want a stronger marriage. Great. Everything that you just learned, apply it to your marriage. All of it. Everything that we just talked about in verses one through six, take it and shove it into your marriage. I want a stronger marriage. Great. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received in your marriage. Live a life worthy of the calling that you have received in your marriage. Be completely humble and gentle in your marriage. Be patient, bearing with one another in love in your marriage. Sometimes we get so comfortable with our spouses, right? We just get comfortable with them and probably a little bit, little bit lazy with them. We tend to do everything else we are supposed to do just with other people, Right? Especially in our Christian walk. Like we show up on Sunday morning, we're like, oh, I'm gonna listen, I'm gonna listen to a message this morning with all of these other people. Man, you guys don't know most of the other people in this room, but I'm gonna go hang out with all these other people and listen to a message and do church and listen to music, or I'm gonna go to a small group and I'm gonna pray in our small group together. And I'll pray with all of these other these other strangers and you know, we get to church and it's the one time we don't ever swear when we're at church because obviously God can only hear you when you're in this building, right? And so we don't, we don't cuss while we're in this building, but other times are okay. But the only, it seems like the only time that, that we live and live out our calling that, that, that Jesus has sent us towards is when we're here. That doesn't, that, doesn't make any, that doesn't make any sense that, that we serve other people only when we're at church. We smile when someone comes and talks with us only when we're at church. And then we get into the car and we drive home and, and turn back into the old version of ourselves where kindness and patience and love seem to have gone by the wayside. It's like Christians are more willing to live according to the calling we have received when we are in public with strangers or members of our congregation rather than when it's just us and our spouses. When we were on uh, uh, baby number four, I don't even know his name. Um, no, I was just kidding. It's Colin. It's Colin. And I'm pretty sure his middle name is James. Um, but Colin was like a roller coaster baby, okay? Um, like, I mean, there were days where this kid, greatest kid ever, right? Like, great, like you wake up and we're talking like baby, baby, like one to six months old and um, like would just like coo and like so kind and like, eat when he was supposed to eat and sleep when he was supposed to sleep and not pee on me when I was changing his diaper, right? Like just great, great baby. Like the type of baby that like when another lady would hold him at this point, like their uterus would do flips, you know what I mean? And they're like, oh, it's time for another one. This baby, like, let's go, time for another baby. And then there were other times where Colin was the greatest form of birth control ever, right? Um, 
Loved him, but he was just a nightmare. He would forget to sleep sometimes. He would forget to eat sometimes. He would pee on everything. Like, it was just a nightmare, right? And so there was one time in particular of this stretch where he just forgot how to sleep. And it was like going on like night 300, probably night three, but we were so exhausted. I was exhausted. Sarah was exhausted. Um, Colin was up and screaming and crying and woke up other boys and all of this stuff. And then, of course, I decided to say something that I knew was going to cause conflict in my marriage because when's a better time to bring something up than when everybody is emotionally drained and tired and it's like 1030 at night and everybody just needs to take a nap, right? Let's do that. And so we got into an argument. Of course, it just, it escalated. And I turned around and I slapped the cabinets in our house, in our rental house, out of anger because I was so just frustrated and done and like just done. I didn't punch it because I didn't want to hurt my hand or hurt the cabinets. That's what I meant. I didn't want to hurt the cabinets. Um, But I wanted it to be loud enough where my point was made, right? Where I'm upset and I'm emotional, but, but like not so aggressive that we would have to repair anything. And, and I walked back to our bedroom and like Sarah stayed out in the living room and she was with Colin. And I just remember like in a moment of clarity, I thought to myself, if anybody else would have seen that, if anybody else would have seen my emotional reaction, my overly emotional reaction to an argument that I had just had with my spouse, they would have questioned two things. They would have questioned my witness because how could somebody who is a godly person who claims to love Jesus and have a renewed life react that way to his spouse? And secondly, they would have questioned my calling as a pastor. If they would have, if they would have been let in, in into that, that moment. But, you know, it didn't matter, right? Because it was just me and my spouse. It didn't, matter if I, it didn't matter for me to live a life worthy of my calling in that moment because it's just my spouse. It doesn't matter if they see it. Like, like it, it doesn't matter if my, my witness and my testimony is harmed, as long as it's just my spouse who sees it. That's the way that we tend to think about these things. It's like, well, they're a safe person, so I can live however I want to live behind closed doors, but as soon as I show up to church, I'm not going to cuss and I'm not going to be overly emotional. I'm not going to do those things there. My spouse can get all the leftovers. My spouse can be the one who sees me at my worst. And part of it is, yeah, your spouse gets to see you at your worst. Trust me, my wife sees me wake up every morning. I am at my worst. But we don't think like that. We don't think in such a way that, you know what, I, like, I need to live a life worthy of my calling in my marriage with my spouse. My spouse needs to see me loving. My spouse needs to see me patient. My spouse needs to see me kind. My spouse needs to see me represent Jesus all of the time. But as long as it's with my spouse, man, I can just, I can be impatient. It's fine because it's just my spouse. They'll forgive me. They have to. Or I can, I can nag them as long as I want. I can be unkind. I can be whatever else it is that I want to be simply because we are too comfortable or too lazy for us to live a life worthy of our calling, even with our spouses. That's an issue. That's a problem. Cool. So what next then? What do we do then? about it. If we're supposed to live this life, and we're supposed to do all these things. Well, Paul isn't done telling us about how it is that we're supposed to live as Christians, how it is that we're supposed to be, be godly. Ephesians 4, 22 to 32, he picks up again. He says this, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for, helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgives or forgave you. So Paul keeps going. He's telling the church in Ephesus, you want to be a good church? You want to be a good church? You want to be godly? Do these things. And so often we like stop there, right? We're like, yes, amen, preach. That's how the church should function. Notice how Christians should function in their marriage. Like you want to live a life worthy of your calling? Live this way at home. Go home and live like this. Take off your old self. Take off your old life, your old way of doing things because Jesus died for you, died on your behalf. So take that thing off because it's being corrupted anyway. Begin to renew your mind so you can put on those shiny new clothes. Right? And I love the, the, the idea of baptism and the symbolism behind it because it's similar to this, to this passage, right? We're going under the water. It's the, the, you're symbolically taking off your own self and the water at that point is symbolically cleansing you from your sins the same way that Jesus sacrificed cleansed you from your sins and you symbolically are raised with Christ when you are, when, when you are then a new creation. You're done at that point. A new creation. In your marriage, live like you're a new creation. Live like Jesus came and rescued you from your sins. Like live like you're a new creation because we were created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness is what the passage says. We're created to live that way. So in your marriages, don't lie to one another. Also, don't ask questions you don't want to hear the truth to, i.e., does this make me look fat? We are commanded to be truthful. Don't ask the question. Just remember that. But don't lie to one another. Be truthful. Why? Because you're members of one body. You're, you and your spouse, like even when you're angry, even when you're sleep deprived and overly emotional, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you are still mad at each other. And I don't think that means you both got to be smiling by sunset. Right? I think that means that, man, you have to be willing, more willing to live for God than you are willing to live for your anger and being right. So in your marriage, stop being angry. Stop sinning in your anger. Do something useful, is what it says. Serve people. Serve your spouse. Serve other people together. You want to live a life worthy of your calling? Do these things. Verse 29, it might be the hardest for us as we try and tighten the knot. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth in your marriage. I added the in your marriage part. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth in your marriage. But say only what is going to build one another up. And the way some of you all talk to each other, or even worse, talk about one another behind your spouse's back, that's gross. It is absolutely gross to you gross to me and sometimes like I know like do it for jokes and sometimes we don't know how to broach an issue with our spouse so we tease them or whatever but rather than making fun of your wife because she burned dinner again what if you just said like honey I know that you're disappointed in dinner let's throw this one away 
go grab some in and out and figure out how we can make it right next time. Right? And I'm not talking about any of you ladies in here or any of you men in here, if you guys are the ones who cooks. Like, I know, I know for a fact that none of you have ever burned a meal in your entire life, so you're absolved from this, but just think about that. Think about the, like, how could I actually talk to my spouse in a way that would build them up, in a way that was God-honoring? I shared this story last service, so I feel like I have to share it again, um, and I wasn't planning to. My dad, if he was here, would probably be like, please don't tell this story. So my mom was a great cook, but growing up, we had, like, our standard meal was, like, chicken, some sort of noodle-roni or rice-a-roni, and some sort of vegetable, like five out of seven days a week, right? Like, that's just what we grew up on. You got to have a protein, got to have a carb, got to have a vegetable. That's just where we went. And so my mom one night was like, you know what? We're going to branch out. My mom decided to be a little bit fancy. This is pre-Pinterest, so I'm sure she got her cookbook out and was flipping through an actual cookbook, and she's, she landed on stir-fry, She's like, you know what? We're, as a family, we're going to have stir-fry. I, 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 don't, I still don't know what stir-fry is, okay? But I know that my mom was going to make it, and I also know that my dad was not very excited to have stir-fry that night because he just started, like, making these little comments. I never heard my dad say anything bad about my mom, her cooking, anything like that ever. This is, like, the one time. And so me and my brother were, like, fifth grade, sixth grade, that sort of thing. We start picking up on it, and obviously me and my brother are like, nope. We don't want it either. It's terrible. I, I, again, legitimately had never tried it in my entire life, but I knew it wasn't chicken and rice-a-roni, so it was, it was not good. And so it just keeps going, and it snowballs, and it snowballs. My dad's making little comments. Me and my brother are like, I'm not eating that, you know, whatever, to the point where my mom finished making stir-fry. She put it on three plates in our, in our dining room, our kitchen dining room, and she left. She put on three plates, one for me, one for my brother, and one for my dad. And she left. And she was like, you know what? You gotta, it was the saddest dinner in the history of our family because me, my dad, and my brother are sitting there like guilt-eating stir-fry that we don't want to eat. We're still convinced it's terrible. And man, like 10 minutes into dinner, my dad just goes, you guys think, you guys think mom left to get a hamburger so she didn't have to eat stir-fry? like, <laughs> you can't say that. You can't say that. Um, but... Uh, but I just remember thinking to myself, like, my dad had never, like, and my mom got home, and I'm sure she had some things to say to my dad about the way he acted earlier that day. But that wasn't wholesome talk that was coming out of his mouth. It wasn't building her up. And by the way, she never made stir-fry again after that, in case for any of you guys are keeping score. Like, never. Um, but man, like, so often, you could, we could just practice doing things. Like, when you come home from the end of the day, and the house is a mess. Like, we need to practice not saying, what did you do all day, right? Like, like, obviously it wasn't clean, so what did you do all day? The kids are alive, the kids are probably mostly fed, but all we're focusing in on is the one thing that your spouse was maybe not able to do because your kids are crazy. And we focus on the negative rather than using our words and wholesome talk to build up our spouses in such a way that we are going to spur them forward towards maturity. Spur them forward towards Jesus in a more real way. Why? Because they get to see Jesus in and through you. And tighten the knot isn't hard. Tighten the knot is actually very, very simple. It's not easy, but tightening the knot is simple. In the same way that becoming more godly is simple. We know what it means to live correctly. We know how it is that we're supposed to live correctly. We, we know what it looks like to live and serve people and how to love and serve our spouse as well. We just have to decide to do it and move forward. That's, that's where we need to land. Our marriage should spur us towards this idea of maturity, not pull us away from it. 
some marriages, man, they're in a place where if the husband gets mad at someone else and then tells the wife about how mean that person was and then the wife gets mad at that person and she tells her friend and now that person is mad at the husband's friend and then like before we know it, there's tons of people who are upset with this one guy simply because we didn't choose maturity in the first place, right? Because the wife didn't encourage her husband towards a Matthew 18 view of conflict resolution. Hey, instead of, let's, instead of talking about it behind this person's back, why don't you go solve the problem and have a conversation like a big boy? And spur each other on towards Jesus, recognizing that, that our spouse should see Jesus in you more clearly than anybody else because you are with them more than anybody else. And so like when, when, when you or your spouse passes away, that your spouse should be able to stand on stage and not through gritted teeth and not forced to say anything of the, uh, any, any, any lies or half-truths, say, this person, my spouse loved Jesus so well. This is how I saw them love me so well. Because they love Jesus, they, man, they served me every opportunity that they got. They encouraged me with their words. They were patient with me. They were kind with me. I saw this new self being brought out as they put their old self to death. So the question is really, what, like, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? Because each and every one of us has to come to terms, first of all, with our old self. Right? Our old self. Take off that old self. Some of you may still be living that old self lifestyle. that You don't recognize maybe your need for Jesus. And you're here and you're like, I wanted to hear a little bit more about marriage and how I can make my marriage stronger and all that stuff. That's cool. Hear us that in order to make your marriage stronger, you need to be more godly. Your first step is recognizing your need for a savior. Your old self was taken off and put at the feet of Jesus on the cross the moment you became part of the family of God. But then the issue becomes, even when we take off the old self, we want to keep going back to it. We want to start, keep going back to those old habits. And we need to wake up in the morning and force our thoughts towards the things of God so we can wake up and be more godly. Not think back to, man, that was so cool when I got to do those things with my old self that I had put to death. We need to wake up and force our minds towards things that are godly. So I want to do something this week. Challenge, church-wide challenge. And for some of you guys, it's going to be really easy. For others, you're going to hate it. And I'll partake, I'll partake as well. But can we just try something this week as a church? This week, I want you to wake up and not get on your phone for the first hour you're awake. One hour. I saw some head turns real fast, like, oh, good. A whole hour two things about this. First of all, you'll survive, okay? (laughs) Humanity has gone thousands and thousands of years not answering a text message from their bestie in the first five minutes, okay? So you'll survive. And I get it. Some of you are thinking, well, I got emails. What if work calls? Like, what if if the school calls? Even though my my kids are still at home right now, like, what what if those things? You'll be fine. No emergency is going to happen in in that one hour. But secondly, Take that hour and allow your mind to go towards things that are godly. Thank him for his provision. Thank him for the blessing of your home. Thank him for the blessing of your work. Thank him for the blessing of your spouse. Thank him for the blessing of your family. Take time to read a physical Bible, one with pages that turn. 
And spend some time with Jesus so you can allow your mind to go towards the things that are good and go towards the things that are godly with your new, spe- with, with your new self. Because something crazy happens like when you wake up and actively decide that you're going to be both present with the Lord and also present with your spouse, you find connection with the person that you have decided to live your life with forever. Rather than as soon as you wake up running to your phones to see what terrible news has popped up today on Twitter, to see what you missed out on on Instagram last night, or see how bad your retirement fund is hurting today, like all of that stuff can wait because it's just going to put you in a bad mood anyway. And it's going to drive a wedge between you and your spouse in some way because you have allowed outside influences into your mind before you have chosen to be godly in the morning. So I just challenge you this week. One hour. That's it. Just one hour. Wake up. You wake up at 5.30. We're impressed by you. Okay, whatever. Don't get on your phone until 6.30. Okay? If you wake up at 6, 7 o'clock, one hour is is all I'm saying in order for us to be able to pursue godliness and become a better, sp- better spouse, we tighten the knot. Why? Because we got to get our minds right on the things above, not these temporal issues that tend to kind of get in the way, that seem to consistently get in the way, and we live a life that is worthy of our calling in our marriage. Church, just imagine what it would look like if in our marriages we simply lived a life that was worthy of our calling lived a life worthy of it, like if our spouse got the best of us rather than the leftovers at the end of the day. That our spouse, like as we woke up and as we spent time together in the morning or even at the end of the day, that, that you just, like your spouse, like they, my, my husband, my wife is so godly and they are pursuing Jesus so much. They are so patient with me. They are so loving towards me. They just love me so much because of the fact that, that God loved them first and God loved them best. Like, how would that impact your relationship with each other? How would that impact your relationship with God? I think if the, if the capital C church decided that our marriages were worth living like we love Jesus, the very nature of society would change. That's a big statement. Remember last week, though, that I talked about the idea that marriage was the very first institution put into place by God. Very first institution before businesses, before churches, before anything else was marriage. Everything flows out of it. Healthy marriages, put out healthy kids, put out healthy members of society, put out more healthy marriages, healthy schools, healthy businesses. You do the math and, and, and think about just everything comes back to this idea of marriages, but for some reason we treat our marriages like they're the least important relationships that we have. Why? Because they have to forgive us. Because it's okay for me to be at my worst with my spouse. Really our goal should be godliness in the midst of our most important relationship that we have on this side of eternity. Godliness. I don't know about you, I don't want to be a better spouse. I want to be a godly husband. Men in the room, I would encourage you don't try to be a better spouse. Do your best to be a godly husband. Ladies in the room, don't try to be a better spouse. Do your best to be a godly wife. And I think as you see those things, as those things start to, to, to flesh themselves out in the church, that we would legitimately, slowly, but surely see health arrive back into our society because we have chosen to exemplify Jesus as we start at home with our most important marriages on this side of eternity. 
Amen? Let's pray, church. God, thank you for today. Thanks for new life. God, thanks for this word. Thanks for baptisms. Thanks for all of the things. God, thanks for marriage. And God, I pray that as we go from this place, we wouldn't be so concerned about being the best, the best spouse we could possibly be, that we would be just concerned with being the most godly version of ourselves that we could be. So as we pursue you, that our marriages, man, like that change takes effect in our marriages. That as we become more loving, we love our spouse better. As we become, as we become more service-oriented, that we serve our spouse better. As all of these things continue to take shape because we continue to become more godly, we continue to become more like you, that our relationship with our spouse completely and totally changes. God, I pray that you would show us the blind spots in our life where we need to see that our, our lives need to change, where we need to be more godly. And Father, maybe there's those in here who are still living with that old self, that we haven't put on the new self yet, but you recognize, if you're in the room right now, maybe you recognize that it is time for you to take off that old self. It's time for you to make a profession of faith for Jesus who came and died for your sins. If that's you this morning and you want to be part of the family of God, you can simply repeat after me. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that I fall short every day, that I sin every single day. But B, I believe that you sent your Son on my behalf to die for my sins so I could be with you forever and see that I would choose to follow you every single day, which means that I am actively becoming more godly every single day. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.